We in the Lord's kingdom, not of this world, live for the truth. Every day of our life, we proclaim the truth. We try to make the truth known. Try to make the truth clear. We fight for truth. And we propagate truth. That's our life in summary. Truth matters to us more than anything else because we have received the love of the truth. When we talk about speaking truth in love, we have to put it in our context, in our time. We have to paint it against the backdrop of what we might call a post-truth world. There was a time when truth seemed to matter to most people more than it seems so now. Most people have always had some comfort level with lies, but in a post-truth world, the lies have now reached epic proportions that I haven't seen before. To where you can go to a university class and you can turn on your television set somewhere in your living room. Much of the time, you have no reason to believe that what you're hearing is actually true. Truth is not as important in our time as people's various narratives and agendas. We've talked before about postmodernism, where the consensus denies that truth even exists, or if it does, it's unknowable. So instead of the truth to them, there's only your truth and my truth based on our feelings of what seems right to us or what we want to be right. Increasingly, people aren't even lying to cover their wickedness. They're just blatantly living it out. Most perversions are now considered acceptable. And it's really inconvenient for people when you tell them the truth. It's offensive to tell the truth. People want to be allowed to live in their own selected categories of lies and untruths. And in rejecting the reality of truth, people are now placing themselves not only in an irrational position, but sometimes almost an insane position, living in a world that doesn't actually exist. Because our entire universe operates on fixed truth, absolutely and inflexibly. Fixed truth rules the physical universe, the laws of nature, the laws of science, the physical laws of God are inviolable, and you can test them. Jump off a building. The law of gravity will work. doesn't matter if you believe in the law of gravity. It'll work anyway. Our world depends on the truth written into the fabric of the created universe. This truth matters to engineers. It matters to airline pilots. It matters to me when I'm sitting on an airplane. It matters to astronauts. It matters to chemists. It matters to pharmacists. It matters to your doctor, your surgeon. It's supposed to matter to a judge. It is basic, rational thinking. This has been built into every normal human mind. According to the second chapter of the Roman letter, we, to some extent, have the law of God written in our heart. When the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. We have a natural understanding of cause and effect based on fixed laws. And rational people care about the laws of nature and science, if only to insulate themselves from the harm that violating those laws could bring. But when it comes to the moral and spiritual part of reality, many people are eager to split that part of life off. They want to believe in absolute truth in the physical world, but reject it in the moral and spiritual world. But the consequences of violating spiritual and moral law are, while not usually as immediate as the consequences of violating natural law, still they can be even worse. It's true that you can live a homosexual lifestyle for decades and still be alive, whereas you can't jump off a 10-story building and live any longer than it takes you to hit the ground. 
Natural law's consequences are so immediate and visible, so experiential and so rational, so obvious, that people don't argue too much against them. But they do everything they can to insulate themselves against the harm that the violations of physical law could bring. That's why we have seat belts in our car. When I was a boy, people just said, well, if we have a wreck, I'll just brace myself. But you're dealing with physical forces that would make the arms of the strongest man look like they were wet noodles. And we understand that now, so we have laws about seatbelts that have saved lots and lots of lives. When it comes to the spiritual realm, though, there's a kind of an insanity that takes over and says, I can just do anything I want to, I can believe anything I want to, and it'll be just fine, because the consequences are not immediate, although they could be, because the wages of sin is death. Because God is merciful and allows sinners the grace to survive, people believe they can store up wrath against the day of judgment, and there will be no consequences. People think they can get away with sin forever. And our society is now drowning in that. It's become a comfortable norm. It's so normal to violate the moral and spiritual laws of God that our nation is making laws to protect those violations. And we're taking children four and five years of age. And we're telling girls, you might not be a little girl. We're telling a little boy, you might not actually be a boy. You might need to have some kind of a transgender treatment. We have an unbelievable advocacy of abortion at any time for any reason and the massacre of the creation of God continually. The society as a whole seems to have now arrived at the cynicism of Pilate who asked, what is truth? And then turned around and walked out of the room without getting the answer to his question. The Russian grand chess master Gary Kasparov, who retired from chess and went into politics, made an interesting statement that the point of modern propaganda is not only to misinform or to push an agenda, but it's to exhaust your critical thinking so as to annihilate truth. This culture is making critical thinking an exhausting battle. They continually hit us with a barrage of lies and deception with the notion that they can wear out our will to fight. And it works in a culture on many people who are not grounded in truth and who fall that kind of insanity. It works with a lot of religious people. It works with a lot of religious organizations who cave in to the demands for certain sins in the culture. This post-truth ideology really flourishes. It is empowered by group identity. If you just have one guy running around saying the sky is falling, then people will laugh at Chicken Little. But if that one guy is empowered by a whole lot of other people all saying the same thing, if you have a collection of liars all committed to this, then they are empowered together. So we have the LGBTQ plus community. We have the trans community. We have the cults. We have false religions. We have aberrations of every stripe and variety. And the individuals involved in those things are not alone. They're empowered because they've got teammates, lots of teammates. And they become ensnared in the immoral, deceptive lies, and that web captures them. They're being mutually affirmed by their other teammates, and they're even more affirmed as the culture in general accepts and applauds them, and the nation makes laws to institutionalize sin and make righteousness a violation of the law. So you and I come along, and we confront that, and we find it's impossible to convince them of the dire deception that they're embracing and its terrifying consequences because you and I are on the outside. And they say to us, well, you haven't lived my life. You haven't walked in my shoes. Who are you to tell me what to do? And as these groups get larger and stronger, they insulate each other more and more in their lives as they manage information into a narrative to reinforce the lies they live in. 
Thomas Gray, the poet, wrote, where ignorance is bliss is folly to be wise. And that's the culture we live in. Ignorance is bliss. And when you show up with some of God's wisdom, you are regarded as the fool. Satisfied with lies and deception, this generation is content in their ignorance and just can't imagine that judgment is actually looming over their heads. Ignorance of moral truth is deadly because built into immorality are its own consequences. He who commits fornication sins against his own body. Ignorance of spiritual truth is even more deadly than we can possibly imagine because it's on an eternal level. Biblical truth to this generation is odious, if not obscene. We have a culture of people trapped in deception and wanting to accommodate that deception. They become lovers of lies. Divine truth comes to them and it appears to be narrow and that's the best thing that they could say about it. It also appears to them to be ignorant, intolerant, arrogant, unloving, judgmental, and exclusive, offering nothing but bondage. Plato is supposed to have said, no one is more hated than the one who speaks the truth. And in the post-truth world, that's true. No one is more hated than someone who speaks the truth. Jesus said he came to testify the truth. That's still the mandate of the church today. And it doesn't matter what the culture is demanding from us. In a culture of lies and deception, the reason we exist is to confront people with truth. We speak it in love because we care. But it's always been an offense, and the gospel always will be an offense. So in that sense, you and I live in order to offend people. It's not an intentional offense, but it is an actual offense. 1 Corinthians 1 says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles as well as being a stumbling block to the Jews. The gospel always offends the contented sinner living in deception. In the eighth chapter of the book of John, the apostle says there, or the uh, Lord Jesus says there that he uh, is, the apostle John says that Jesus is speaking the, the truth. And Jesus says in verse 34, truly, truly, everyone who habitually commits sin is a slave of sin. He's saying sin is bondage. Forgiveness of sin is freedom. He says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, and yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Nobody's more hated than one who speaks the truth. They killed Jesus because he spoke the truth. I speak the things that I've seen of my father, he said. They answered and they said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I have heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're not Abraham's children. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. Your father was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he's speaking right out of his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. That's about as clear as it can get. If you're in the family of Satan, the father of lies, then you believe lies. And that's what defines the domain of darkness. Satan was a liar from the beginning. He lied to Eve in the garden. Everything he does is intended to detract from, to upset, or to deny the truth. There is depicted here the whole pathology of humanity. Those who come to know God through Christ believe the truth and love the truth. Everybody else is susceptible to lies. We used to say that if you don't stand for Jesus, you're liable to fall for anything. And that's still just as true as it ever was. The only hope for somebody trapped in lies is truth. So many people today want to remove the offensive part of of the truth and find some sentimental approach to Jesus that offends nobody in the kingdom of darkness. But we're at a place in our society now 
where when we're serious about truth, we need to be expecting to be hated in our time. That old Judeo-Christian consensus that we had for so many decades is evaporating pretty fast, and you and I are on the outside of it. We're talking to all these identity groups, collective groups of sinners who are reinforcing their sin. We're speaking the truth to them from the outside, and they hate it. And they're starting to say that we are the biggest threat that exists in the whole world. Bigger threat than China, bigger threat than Russia, you and me. We're the biggest threat that exists to the country in the whole world. And I think Christians are going to become increasingly marginalized if they speak the truth. Now, if we cower and don't speak the truth, we may escape some earthly curse, but we will not escape divine judgment. We're the outsiders, and we're so far outside that we actually believe a correspondence view of truth that just simply says that truth corresponds to reality. You're looking at me, this is a microphone, this is a pulpit, and we all understand that because we have our truth corresponding to our reality. That's the correspondence view. But there are other non-correspondence views of reality. One of them is fabulism or mystical reality. And this is where people have gone so far into deception and lies with no corrective, with no reset button, that they begin denying things that are actually obvious. How else do you explain the transgender movement? That is insanity. Here we are, the outsiders, speaking to people who have a completely distinct view of truth in the moral and spiritual realm, and who are at least approaching a mystical reality, a fabulism that lets them redefine even physical reality as something other than what it actually is. We say truth is reality. We're just telling you reality. Reality in the physical world, we would think people would be more likely to believe. But there's also reality in the spiritual realm that's revealed on the pages of Scripture from the author and creator of us all. What happens in a culture when it abandons truth? Let's look at the first chapter of the Roman letter just briefly, because this teaches us about human culture. In Romans 1.18, we see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. People suppress the truth because it speaks to and of their unrighteousness. It's not rational to suppress spiritual truth, but spiritual truth attacks their sins. It exposes their deception. They're not motivated by reason. They're motivated by the love of sin. Verse 19 says that that which is known of God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse rationality is built into human experience. Every human being is to some degree a rational being. He knows to eat, he knows to take care of himself, he understands the cause and effect realities of the world. Reason works on cause and effect. Do one thing and here's the effect, you do something else and something else happens. Reason is a chain of cause and effect reality. That's how everything around us works. And if you keep on following that chain of reason back, we eventually have to ask, what is the ultimate cause of everything we see? Because it's not rational to say that nobody times nothing equals everything. That's irrational. It's insanity to say that the entire universe came out of nothing by accident. Von Neumann, the Hungarian-American mathematician and engineer who worked on the Manhattan Project with Edward Teller, imagined a perfect machine. He said this perfect machine would be self-propelling, self-repairing, 
self-reproducing. It would have within itself the capacity to energize its own functionality so it could fix itself, it could reproduce itself over and over again. That would be the perfect machine, but the perfect machine is impossible for us to make and yet this man was talking about every living cell in the universe, which does exactly what the perfect machine would do. It would be an amazing thing to think that that could just happen by chance. And yet we have so many people thinking that now. The very first sentence in the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's such a basic, benign sounding statement. But about 120 years ago, when they first started making classifications, scientists came up with the idea that everything that exists in the universe can be fitted into five categories. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Time, force, action, space, and matter. And that's what we have in Genesis 1-1. We have time in the beginning, force, God, action, created, space, the heavens, and matter, the earth. Only folly would say that this is some great accident. Reason always takes you back to God. Personality takes you back to a God who is a personality. Relationships take you back to a God who is relational. All of these are reflections of God. How can life come from non-life? How can personality come from non-personality? But man, in suppressing the truth, winds up not only suppressing the revelation that God has written, but suppressing the very revelation written within his own reason. So in verse 21, still in Romans 1, even though they knew God, they didn't, they didn't not believe in an ultimate cause. They knew God. To not believe in God, you have to go against that which is obviously true. But even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became empty in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the, in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things, crawling creatures. Why? Why did they always throughout history turn from God to bugs and animals? Because bugs and animals don't give you moral requirements. People get rid of God to get rid of the lawgiver because they don't like the notion that the law speaks against their unrighteousness. All these efforts we have in our society now to make the world safe for fornication and to legalize sin are collective groups of people trapped in lies and deception, trying to make their sin normal and in so doing, suppressing the truth of God that is both built into them and their reasoning functionality and further revealed in Scripture. And this is so they can live in sin freely. They profess themselves to be wise. You can be, get PhDs in these kinds of things, but God says you're still a fool. They exchange the glory of the uncorruptible God for an image. They make their own gods so they can make them in their own image. And these gods don't require things of them that violate what they want to do. The wrath of God, not only eventual hell and not only the sowing and reaping consequential kind of wrath where you behave in a certain way and there are consequences built into that behavior, but it's also the wrath of abandonment. This is talking collectively. God is talking about societies here in Romans 1. There comes a time when God says, I'm through with you as a society. I'm done with your civilization. And it seems like possibly our civilization is headed into that kind of judgment at this time in our history. In verse 26, he says, for this reason, because of this. What's the reason? They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They're exchanging of the truth of God for a lie. They're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. 
Man ultimately worships himself, and it's for this reason. Because of the rejecting of the truth of God, he says in verse 24, God gave them up. God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. When God lets go of a civilization, there is an explosion of immorality. This started for us a few decades back, and now in many circles, fornication is just as common as having lunch, just as normal as having lunch. Music, movies, television, all reflect this and all encourage this. Verse 26 says, God gave them over to degrading passions. This is something worse. The women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, lesbianism. Traditionally, it seems that women would be the last ones to cave into this kind of behavior because they have a mothering instinct and because they need the protection of men and the security that men can provide. But when this wrath of God's abandonment is taking over, then lesbianism will flourish. And what do we see in our country in our time? Verse 27 says, in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. I remember many years ago reading Milton Hepburn, the chief medical examiner of New York City who had performed 30,000 autopsies. He said, when I they bring in the body of a man who's been murdered, I know right away if a homosexual committed that murder just because of the unbelievable overkill. This man was a secular Jew. He wasn't trying to make a moral point. He's just talking about the job that he knew. He's just saying, whatever these passions are, they are out of control. When a society is given over to degrading passions, women with women, men with men, verse 27, burning in their desire toward one another like the Sodomites who actually wanted to rape the angels in Genesis 19. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their person the due penalty of their error, AIDS, and other venereal diseases. When God gives a nation up, there will be a sexual revolution followed by a homosexual revolution. But that's not the end of it yet. Verse 28 says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, every one of these is because they rejected the truth of God. God gave them over to a depraved, reprobate mind. What is a depraved or a reprobate mind? It's a mind that doesn't work right. It's insanity. When you're a man and you think you're a woman, that's insanity. When you're a woman and you think you're a man, that is insanity. And this insanity has now been codified in our culture as legitimate. The American Psychological Association, the American Medical Association has found category for this insanity. And they're accommodating this insanity with bizarre procedures involving drugs and surgeries. We've lost our minds. When I see Jenner, and I'm not using a first name here, But when I see Jenner on my television set, I know that I'm looking at a man in a dress. You may know that too, but do your grandchildren know that? Little by little, we're being acculturalized to this type of thinking. We're being given over to a mind that does not function correctly to do things that are not proper. This sets loose everything that we read about in verse 29 there that I won't take the time to read through in Romans 1. Even though they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice these things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. This society now will approve of your sin, it will approve of your perversion, but it won't tolerate the truth. Although truth is the only hope. Truth is the only hope. Let's look quickly at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. When Paul says here that we walk in the flesh, he just means that we're human. He's not speaking here in the same sense as he does in Romans 8 when he says that we're not in the flesh. Here he's just saying we're human. We're human, but we don't war according to the flesh. 
We can't go into the spiritual battle with human weapons. Verse 4 says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not human. Fighting the spiritual war, we use weapons that are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. This is the picture of Christians who have a formidable task of bringing down the fortresses. These are not paper houses. These are fortresses made of stone. A fortress of stone in the ancient world was so sturdy that some of them that were standing when Paul wrote this are still standing in our own time. In bringing down spiritual fortresses, we don't use human weapons. You can't come up with any kind of a marketing technique for this. Verse 5 tells us what the fortresses are. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. A fortress, then, is any anti-God speculation. Logismos is the Greek expression. It's talking about ideas, any anti-God mix of philosophy, psychology, and religion. Any such complex of ideas. In this spiritual war, we're going after the complete destruction of such fortresses and strongholds. The word for fortress is the same as the word for prison and the same as the word for tomb. People in their identity groups, in their ideological sin groups, are fortified. They're fortified and they are resistant. They're resistant to reasoning. They're resistant to even having conversation, rational conversation with you. I talked to a man about the sign he was holding up while he was protesting. Tried to talk to him. He didn't want to talk about his sign. He was just mad. Their fortress becomes their prison. Their prison becomes their tomb. So what is our responsibility? We have to destroy ideologies. Any elevated thing raised against the knowledge of God, any idea, any religion, any philosophy, any theory, any viewpoint that attacks divine truth. We're making war against the lies in which people are in prison. And what's our goal? Verse 5, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So how do you destroy a fortification of lies? There's only one weapon, and that's truth. That's all we have. The Lord evidently thinks that's all we need. And the more clearly, the more powerfully, the more relentlessly, and the more reasonably we articulate that truth, the more powerfully it attacks these fortifications. We have to attack the ideology that will be their tomb if they're not delivered from it. And of course it offends them. We expect that it will. Now, it really shouldn't offend somebody in a burning house when you grab them and yank them out the door before the place collapses on them. Jude says some say with fear, snatching them out of the burning, pulling them out of the fire. It shouldn't offend them, but we all know that it usually does. Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Yep, usually. This is the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. It's a war to assault lies. So we need to know the truth. We need to be as bold as brass to proclaim that truth. The greatest homage we can do with the truth is to speak it. Some are going to say it's hate speech. We have to let the chips fall where they will. There is an essential connection between truth, between sin and lies. And as long as people can sustain their lies in their own minds, as long as they can sustain among their interest groups some self-justification for their sins, then they feel pretty good about it. God is warning cultures, he's warning nations, that he eventually lets them go the way their sins take them, and he lets them go without restraint. We had a sexual revolution that became so embedded that people now think it's normal. We had a homosexual revolution where people are proud of that. I used to wonder about the book of Ezekiel when it talks about Sodom and their sin being pride. I said, well, how come you're not mentioning homosexuality? I didn't even mention homosexuality 
in Ezekiel when he talks about Sodom, but he talks about pride. And we hear so much about gay pride. There's something connecting those two concepts. Now we have an insanity where people think that things are true that are absolutely, obviously, patently, and clearly not true. We keep going down this road, and that wrath of abandonment ultimately becomes eternal wrath. And that's why you and me are warning people. And that stirs up trouble. We didn't write God's message. We just deliver it. I tell people, I'm just the mailman. I'll fight, and I'll show you why. Jude says to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. You have to fight. Fight those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord and Master who bought them, Jesus Christ. So many people want to create today a kind of Christianity that does not denounce people's sins. And they scoff at that holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. But our speech must reflect God's will and God's word. Our hearts must be filled with the love for the truth, both written and incarnate. We must love the truth and preach the truth no matter what the consequences are. We must bring that truth to bear on the fortresses in which people have placed themselves. Ideologically protected safety zones where their sins seem to be safe. We smash those fortresses with the truth before those fortresses become their prisons and their tombs because we're trying to get each thought brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. If we speak the truth in love, then we're going to tend to have the right attitude. If we have the right attitude, we're going to tend to speak at the right time, in the right place, with the right words, like Nathan the prophet when he spoke the truth to King David. 